So good morning to you. Um, I'm actually not going to talk about the Anabaptists as such. I'm going to try to uh, do a uh, series, I don't know how many, on uh, Anabaptist history and theology. And this morning, I thought I should start with the roots of the Reformation. And in trying to prepare for this, I almost got um, overwhelmed. There are so many details and what needs to be said and how to look at things. And so I'm going to try to do a high speed and, and get up to uh, 1,500. This is 1,400 years. I'm going to try to use a PowerPoint to just so you can stay where I am. Might help me stay where it is as well. So. <clears throat> There are a lot of things I could talk about here as part of the introduction. I have quite a few notes, and I'm probably going to skip quite a few of them. Uh, so who are Mennonites, and how, do they, how did they begin? And I think most of us know that the term Mennonite is, um, the name comes from Menel Simons. But the reality is that Menno Simons was not present in 1525 at the first baptisms. I think 15 men baptized each other in Zurich, Switzerland, 1525. He wasn't there. Uh, he was still uh, a Catholic priest and very distraught, distressed, confused wondering if it could really be true that the um that the blood and that the that the bread and wine could turn into the uh body and blood of Christ he he just was um about to lose his mind over is it really true what if it's not so he wasn't present but Mennonite comes from Menno Simons. Um, the meaning of the term Anabaptist is just baptize again. And, and Anabaptists hated this term because they said uh, the first infant baptism was not valid, so this is not a being baptized again, this is the first one, the only one that matters as an adult. Uh, Martin Luther actually is is the, uh, come on here, Martin Luther actually is the one who is uh, credited for starting the Reformation in 1517, 
uh, actually October 31. Maybe that's Halloween nowadays, All Saints Day. When he wrote that he uh, nailed the 95 Theses on the church door, and I'll talk about this sometime at a later session, but uh, his 95 Theses were a reaction to the indulgence system, which he felt was um, being misused. And so the 95 Theses were his statements about what the indulgence system was supposed to be. And he was reacting to the uh, what he thought was misuse of the system. So uh, everyone, pretty much, maybe except Catholics, in 1500, a lot of people wanted a reform in the Catholic Church. Even some Catholics wanted one, Erasmus did. He wanted a reform, changes, because, well, there were many problems, which I will try to describe this morning. But Anabaptists, the 15 who rebaptized in Zurich, they were not looking for a reform. They wanted what they called a restitution. They wanted to get back to the New Testament. They wanted to get away from all that has been in the church from 100 to 1500. They wanted to get, they wanted to get to the roots. And and the reality is they tried. I don't think they did altogether, but they tried. And so reformers were reforming, and Anabaptists were trying to do a restitution. So why why should we study Anabaptist history? And I, I have a number of things here, and I, I'll just have to... Skip some of it. Um, the comments I make here are not intended to be critical about anybody or any situation, whatever. Uh, I grew up here, and um, when I was ordained at age 22, uh, I knew nothing. Maybe I should just stop there. I knew nothing. I just knew very little. I didn't know much Bible doctrine, and I didn't know any history. And I didn't know who we were or why, what, hardly what we believed or why we believed. I basically knew what we did, which is good. Uh, things that people, things that you do as, uh, tradition. They do have value. I knew that, but I didn't have I didn't have any basis. And so ten, eleven years later, well first of all, the first week after I was ordained, I did not go to work. I was so I think overwhelmed and distraught. I didn't even go to work and during that first week, I decided that somehow I had to learn things I didn't know 
but I didn't know what I needed to learn. But after a while, I decided that I had to learn Greek and I had to learn something about church history. And, and that's why I went to Liberty, and I did learn Greek, and I learned some church history, <clears throat> 90% of which I've forgotten by now. That's how this goes. That's a long time ago. Um, but but here here is, I'll just say, I took a class in Anabaptist history at Liberty, and I... I was going to bring my notes this morning. I forgot them. I have my notebook. I have all the notes from all the classes I ever took. I, and I was looking through those notes yesterday. And I was like, you know what? He didn't do too bad a job. That's pretty good. And then I took another Anabaptist history class at EMC, actually the seminary. And that, I'm sorry, I mean, this is where it happened. In that class, we were forced to read, yes. We read hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff, and all, all the grade was based on answering two questions a week. And that, in that reading of Anabaptist history was, I think, what almost converted me. It was where I came to understand uh, better. Uh, the idea of surrender to Jesus and and being saved. I'll go into that some other day. So I'm just saying the reading and study of history can be, it was very helpful to me. I can't make it be helpful to you. It was helpful to me. So the study of history, I think, uh, helps us understand where we came from, uh, what did the people believe, what were they reacting to, what were they trying to establish, what were they trying to accomplish, how successful were they, how important was it, what's happened since then. And there's all these questions, and I think some study helps us understand these things. Uh, so one one thing the study of history does, it helps you notice if you pay attention. It can help you notice your reactions. Now, most people are in a reaction to something. And uh, sometimes when you're reading, for me, when I was reading, uh, I would notice that I didn't like something I was reading. Oh, so I'm reacting here. What What am I reacting to? And sometimes the things that we believe are the result of reactions to something, and maybe it's not a good reaction. So we have, we have, um, in my lifetime, I, I know, I, I have known a lot of people and talked with a lot of people. It, it's, because of faith builders, and so many, so many, some of them are not Christians today, and, and many of them are not Mennonites, and that does not make them go to hell, okay? But something went on, and there's been a lot of loss, and 
some of that's from lack of understanding, I believe. All right, to get to the roots. So the Reformation of the 1500s had had roots in a lot of bad things that had happened for the previous 1500 years, 1400 years. It had had the, the Reformation uh, had intellectual, social, political uh, roots, religious roots. It was uh, rooted in abuses that people were trying to correct, situations that people were trying to address, trying trying to change. Uh, like this big ocean liner trying to change the direction. So we're, I'm starting with 100, and I'll talk a little bit about um, various stages here and what happened. So the, I'll just characterize 100 to 300 as persecution. So the persecution had a number of uh, reasons, a number of reasons for it. One was political. Uh, Christians faced little persecution as long as they were viewed as part of, as long as they were viewed as Jews. Uh, Jews had protection. Uh, of course, Paul in in Acts, um, he he tried really hard to say that we're not Jews, and you don't have to keep the law, and you don't have to do circumcision, and so. Gradually, Christianity and Judaism became separate. That is, it was viewed as two separate things. And the Roman government, the political part, the Roman government required worship of the emperor, and uh, Christians required supreme allegiance to Jesus Christ. So there was a conflict there. And then uh, religious roots of the Roman state had altars, idols, priests, uh, various rites and practices that people could see and participate in, and Christians refused to participate in these practices. And, and I read somewhere that they even prayed to a god they couldn't see, and they were considered um, atheists. And they were condemned for that. And social roots, uh, Christianity had a great appeal to the common people. And uh, many common people joined, they became Christians. And there was a big uh, conflict between uh, between the lower class and the upper class and a reaction to Christianity because of that. And then there were economic issues, uh, the one in Acts 19.27 where the idol makers in Ephesus were worried that Christianity would ruin their income. So persecution kept the church small, and only those willing to die became Christians. And there was an emphasis on strong church leadership and uh to hold things together in the midst of persecution. So the the problem of 
church state comes out already in Acts. But the problem of church state religion is present already in Acts uh, in the first few chapters of Acts. And except, here's my statement, except for radicals, uh, the common view was that society would collapse if the political and religious aspects of society were not combined. There was no such thing as separation of church and state. And and the reality is that the Anabaptists were the first people to to think that it would be possible to have a separation. And one way to say it is they they were ahead of their times. Most countries today recognize the separation, but they didn't back then, and they were killed for that. So uh, we could have a conversation about church-state, which we won't this morning, and... Um, participation in government, and so on. I'll go on. 300 uh, to 600, I have as civil rulers gained power over the church. There was an attempt by civil rulers to use the church to unify society. So we have a number of events. In 313, the Edict of Milan, which made uh, Emperor Constantine accepted Christianity, so now there's no more persecution. And uh, Christianity is a valid religion now. Then in 395, Emperor Theodosius um, made Christianity the exclusive religion. It's the only religion, cannot have any other religion. And hordes of barbarians... Uh, became Christians by being, uh, in some cases, actually chased into the water, into a river. And uh, now they're baptized. <clears throat> Did I hear somebody laugh? There are so many, so many sad things. Um the difficulty of the union of church and state there in 395 is that Roman emperors uh, required and participated. They required a unified belief dogma for Christians because they thought that would stabilize society. So they participated, they required and participated in this uh, sometimes called for um, meetings in which things could be discussed, and they even participated sometimes in the discussion, and even sometimes said what the conclusion has to be. So there, it was issues like Gnosticism, uh, the idea that all matter is evil. This is all very summarized. Uh, God could not directly create matter, and they rejected the Old Testament. 
the issue of which writings are scripture, what is the right canon, uh, and this was uh, the need to define this. It was a result of these false teachings. You have to know which writings are authoritative so you know what's true. Disagreements about the Trinity and Christology. Is God three or one? In what sense is Christ God? Um, Arianism, uh, which believe Christ is created. <clears throat> By the way, I'll just say, in general, there is no new false belief. There is no new false belief. There isn't. Whatever idea somebody has, Somebody already had it. Whatever false idea somebody has, it's already been talked about, thought about, and condemned. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but this is just the reality. We are not that, we're not that smart. Um, the organization of the church, the roles of the ordained, um, Military service, I'm just mentioning issues in which uh, emperors were involved somehow. Um, the question of uh, in salvation, does God save people? Irresistible grace versus participation participation of a person in choosing uh, the action of the human will. Yeah. So in all these controversies, the easiest solution was for the emperor to take a position and impose that position on the church. And debates about these issues were not purely scriptural or theological. They were... They were about what the emperor believes, and his beliefs were often the result of political ramifications. And I'm not, I'm not passing any judgment on whether the conclusions were biblical or not in the end. Some of them, I think, were. Uh, that I'm just saying that this is what happened. So by 600, uh, there were many pagans in the church. Pagan practices, and so you have purgatory. The saints are purified before they enter heaven. The tr that tradition equals scripture. Good works are an aid to salvation, not the result of it. And worship of saints is an aid to daily living. All, all kinds of practices that came in with uh, the whores who were run through the water. Uh, Six hundred to twelve hundred. We have a little ways to go. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church gains power over the state and over people's spiritual lives, and it uses the state to Christianize society. So 800. Uh, so you have feudalism, a system in which people were given land and protection by people of higher rank, and they worked and fought for them in return and there was a loss of strong central government, and the Roman Catholic Church became a major landowner. 
and had a lot of power, a lot of authority, and peasants became very poor. I am racing. Uh, in 1080, Pope Gregory VII issued a decree, I won't pronounce it, and he said there had never been an error in the church, and the church could never err. That's nice to know. It's not helpful when you claim that for yourself. You're not God. He wasn't God. Uh, Pope Innocent III. Uh, <clears throat> he was Pope from 1198 to 1216, and he viewed himself as his supreme spiritual authority on earth under Christ. That's not exaggerated. It's a quote. He believed that kings and princes derived their authority from him, not God, and that he could excommunicate and depose them if he wished. He believed that God had given the successor of Peter the rank, the, the task of ruling the whole world, not just the church. And so about 1200, he humiliated, uh, John actually mentioned this in a sermon recently, he humiliated King Philip, Augustus of France, uh, because King Philip had married someone and then he disliked her and he claimed that she had bewitched him. And, and so he got rid of her and he married someone else. And, um, Pope Innocent III, uh, I don't know what all he did, but he, he forced uh, King Philip to get rid of this this wife and to go back to his first one. And uh, and then uh, King John of England, uh, he, he humiliated him for forcing the Bishop of England to uh, install people in the church that he wanted installed. I can't even describe all this foolishness, but in, in all of this, what what the Pope did was put the whole country under what was called an interdict, and now they can't practice communion, they can't baptize, they can't do uh, extreme unction for anybody, and the kings had to give in. So he, he had all this authority. So by, um, uh, 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council, <clears throat> uh, decided these things. People must attend Mass at least at Easter. That's good. They must make a confession to a priest at least once a year. And they made substantiation a dogma, the view that the blood, the body and blood of Christ become, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ at communion. So that was the height of the power of the Catholic Church, so now we're going to go downhill. 
1200 and following is disintegration, so 1309 to 1377 is called the Babylonian Captivity. Maybe that rings a bell with you. It was 70 years of the Catholic Church being under the control of a political a ruler. So in the midst of a power struggle between Pope Boniface VIII and the kings of England and France, uh, the papacy was forced to move from Rome to France and was under the control of civil rulers. Um, maybe, maybe I should just read this. England and France were at war with each other, and in order to raise revenue, they taxed the clergy. In response, the Pope forbade the priests to pay the taxes. And the kings responded by outlawing the clergy, forbidding them to acknowledge the Pope's claims to temporal power, and forbidding the export of money to Italy. This is all going to work, okay? This struggle continued until the Pope said there was no salvation outside the church and that the Pope had spiritual and temporal authority over everything, but he could not. He didn't have the power to back this up. And the Pope after him moved the papacy to France and came under the control of the French monarchs. This is all supposed to be about spirituality, but it's not. Uh, then you have 1378 to 1417, called the Great Schism, in which there were three popes. I won't go into it. You have resentment toward the Roman Catholic Church by national rulers uh, who had replaced the feudal system. They had no obligation to the pope, and uh, they would gained wealth and power, and they wanted to keep it. <laughs> and they didn't want the Pope telling them what to do. There was a resentment toward the church by common people. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is a foreign landowner. They use its people's money to fund, they thought, corruption in the clergy. The Black Death Plague of the 1350s, uh, the estimate, estimate is that 25 to 30% of the population died. And uh, our late experience here with COVID would say if 25 to 30% of the population died, there would be a total, I don't know what, there was total chaos, fear. Uh, social unrest because of war and famine and uh, sickness. And then you have this humanism, that is the interest in languages and literature, Greek, Hebrew, Hebrew Latin, and the Bible, and a great expanse of reading. And uh, join that with printing, uh, Gutenberg, a printing press in 1450 and movable type in 1500 and cheap paper in 1500. And by 1500, there were 1,000 printers in Europe, and one half of the books that were printed were religious. It's a big, this is a big part of what brought the Reformation. 
And then finally, the, uh, there was this thing called the Fifth Lateran Council the Catholic Church had from 1512 1517, an effort to redeem, reform the Catholic Church, but they could not get anywhere and it failed. So then there was a reaction. Um, so Tetzel's sale of indulgences. We're, we're now at uh, 1515. Uh, he was hired by Archbishop Albert to sell, Tetzel was, to sell indulgences to get money so Albert could buy a second church office. He was 23. Albert and Pope Leo X agreed to split the proceeds equally. I believe of the money that the Pope got, the half I believe he built uh, St. Peter's Cathedral. And so the 95 Theses was Luther's reaction to Tetzel. His abuse of the indulgence system because Tetzel said repentance uh, was not necessary if you buy an indulgence and it would give forgiveness of all sin. And Luther said this is not what the Catholic Church believes it's not what it taught, and so he's going to try to straighten itself. So, a summary of disintegration. So, by by 1500, uh, you, Europe was going through great social and political turmoil. The peasants were ready for a radical social, economic, and religious spiritual change. But no one had any paradigm, blueprint, for what these changes should look like. Um, There were those who wanted to maintain the old order and those who wanted to just overthrow it. And I would say that uh, in general, in general Anabaptists, I don't think I'm overstating it, they did not care one bit about social order. They didn't care if the beliefs they found in the things they said the Bible teaches. They didn't care what the result was going to be for themselves or for society. They were just going to obey the Bible. I'm not saying they always obeyed the Bible, but I do think that was their commitment. And people like Luther, Calvin, I would say... Uh, we call them Protestants back then, reformers, major reformers, they had way more concern about maintaining stability and uh, not doing radical things. 
and uh, there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of chaos. Uh, now I should <clears throat> I should say this yet that uh, there were many attempts to reform prior to the Reformation, and I'll just give you. Uh, there's all of these groups, and there's some others too, and I don't have here, I don't have uh, the orders in the Catholic Church that were attempts to reform. So I'll just mention what these groups believed. Um, in, in general, they, they, um, they, tried to address more corruption. Uh, they promoted idea of priesthood of believers and a regenerate church membership. They wanted a disciplined church. They wanted believers' baptism. Uh, not all of them, but a number. Uh, they wanted a voluntary response to God and not forced by state to infant baptism. Uh, they had the idea that you're not saved because you uh, partake of the Lord's Supper or are baptized. They, some of these groups were opposed to the, the orders of the clergy and the special dress and, and the councils and the decisions made off up there that were uh, partly the result of political issues. Um, Lord's Supper for Believers Only, opposed to infant baptism, uh, the idea that faith without works cannot save. Um, so most, most of these groups got, what's the word I want, destroyed. Many people killed. Um, <clears throat> the last person there, John Huss, uh, was burned at the stake. And uh, his beliefs were very similar to John Wycliffe. And in a debate, uh, I'm jumping ahead now, in a debate in July of 1519 uh, between John Eck and Martin Luther, Eck was able to get Luther to admit that he agreed with many of John Huss's ideas for which Martin Luther was condemned as a heretic. So uh, what I'm saying is these people who lived throughout the centuries and, and reacted to whatever was the norm, these people did have an influence, and they did have followers, and people did, uh, I think, saw some light in some things. And uh, even a per even people who were killed became an inspiration to people later, like with John Huss and Martin Luther. So it, it is impossible to uh, adequately summarize of 1,500 years of church history. Uh, <clears throat> what we know is that in every age, despite good intentions, and sometimes because of evil intentions, 
I think that's true. Unbiblical and evil things have happened in the name of Christ. And we also know uh, from the study of church history that in every age there have been people who were willing to die instead of um, sacrifice what they believed was true. And uh, I think today we can be grateful for these people who were faithful as they saw, uh, as they understood truth to be. And I believe we're called to that today, too. And uh, by the way, the verse that's on the board up here um, is one of the verses in the context of the verse I was wanting which is 1 Corinthians 3:11 for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ which was Martin Luther's text that he had on everything he wrote um, Jesus Christ is the foundation thank you <clears throat> 